Section 7 of The Court and Character of King James, whereunto is now added The Court of King Charles, by Anthony Weldon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Court of King James, Part 6 And now Buckingham, having the Chancellor, Treasurer, and all great officers, his very slaves, swells in the height of pride, summons up all his country kindred, the old countess providing a place for them to learn to carry themselves in a court-like garb. But because they could not learn the French dances so soon as to be suitable to their gay clothes, country dances, for their sakes only, must be the garb of the court, and none else must be used. Then must these women kindred be married to earls, earls' eldest sons, barons, or chief gentlemen of greatest estates, insomuch that the very female kindred were so numerous as were sufficient to have peopled any plantation. Nay, very kitchen-wenches were married to knights' eldest sons. Yet, as if England had not matches enough in the kingdom, they married like the House of Austria in their own kindred. Witness the Earl of Anglesey married a cousin German, to whom he had given earnest before. So the King James, that naturally in former times hated women, had his lodgings replenished with them, and all of the kindred. The brethren, great earls. Little children did run up and down the king's lodgings, like little rabbit-starters about their burrows. Here was a strange change, that the king, who formerly would not endure his queen-children in his lodgings, now you would have judged that none but women frequented them. Now that was not all, but the kindred had all the houses about Whitehall, as if they had been bulwarks and flankers to that citadel. But above all the miracles of those times, old Sir Anthony Ashley, who never loved any but boys, yet he was snatched up for a kinswoman, as if there had been a concurrency through the kingdom, that those that naturally hated women, yet should love his kindred, as well as the king him. And the very old midwives of that kindred flocked up for preferment, of which old Sir Christopher Perkins, a woman-hater, that never meant to marry, nay, it was said he had made a vow of virginity, yet was coupled to an old midwife so that you see the greatness of this favourite, who could force by his power over the king, though against nature. But I must tell you, this got him much hatred to raise brothers and brother-in-laws to the highest rank of nobility, which were not capable of the place, of scarce a justice of the peace. Only his brother Purbeck had more wit and honesty than all the kindred beside, and did keep him in some bounds of honesty and modesty, whilst he lived about him, and would speak plain English to him, for which plainness, when they had no colour to put him from his brother, they practised to make him mad, and thought to bring that wicked stratagem to effect by countenancing a wicked woman, his wife, the Lord Cook's daughter, against him, even in her base and lewd living. And now is Purbeck mad indeed and put from court. Now none great with Buckingham but boards and parasites, and such as humoured him in his unchaste pleasures so that since his first being a pretty, harmless, affable gentleman, he grew insolent, cruel, and a monster not to be endured. And now is Williams, sometimes chaplain to the Lord Keeper Edgerton, brought into play, made a privy councillor. Dean of Westminster, and of secret counsel with the King, he was also made Bishop of Lincoln, and was generally voiced at his first step to marry Buckingham's mother, who was in her husband's time created a countess, he remaining still as silly, drunk, and soft. And this was the first precedent of this kind ever known. Williams held her long in hand, 
and no doubt in nature of her confessor was her secret friend, yet would not marry at present, which afterwards was cause of his downfall. Then was there a Parliament summoned in which Bacon, for his bribery and injustice, was thrust out, being closely prosecuted by one Morby, a woodmonger, and one Renham, formerly deeply censured in the Star Chamber, for accusing him of bribery and injustice. Bacon was by Parliament justly put out of his place, and but only for the votes of the bishops had been degraded. The bishops might have done better to have kept their voices, to have done themselves service at this time, but surely that with some other injustice of theirs had so filled up their measure of iniquity that now God's anger is kindled against them. In Bacon's place comes Williams, a man on purpose brought in at first to serve turns, but in this place to do that which none of the laity could be found bad enough to undertake, whereupon this observation was made that first no layman could be found so dishonest as a clergyman, next, as Bacon the father of this Bacon, did receive the seals from a bishop, so a bishop again received them from a baker. And at this did the lawyers fret, to have such a flower pulled out of their garland. This Williams, though he wanted much of his predecessor's abilities for the law, yet did he equal him for learning and pride, and beyond him in the way of bribery. This man answering by petitions in which his servants had one part, himself another, and so was calculated to be worth to him and his servants, three thousand pounds per annum by a new way never found out before and now being come to the height of his preferment he did estrange himself from the company of the old countess having much younger ware who had keys of his chamber to come to him yet was there a necessity of keeping him in this place for a time the spanish match being yet in chase and if it succeeded this man was to clap the great seal through his ignorance of the laws to such things that none that understood the danger by knowing the laws would venture upon. And for this design was he at first brought in, no prince living knowing how to make use of men better than King James. Now was also Suffolk turned out of his place of Lord Treasurer, and a fellow of the same batch that Williams was brought into his place, Cranfield, that was the projector, and never could get higher than that title in Somerset's time, now marrying one of Buckingham's kindred, attained one of the highest titles in the kingdom. So that it was now generally said that for pride and baseness these two great places were never so suited, both of mean birth, both proud, only the one an excellent scholar and of great parts, the other nothing but a pack of ignorance soldered together with impudence to raise him, besides his marriage and the lusty kindred. This Cranfield was a fellow of so mean a condition as none but a poor-spirited nobility would have endured his perching on that high tree of honour, to the dishonour of the nobility, the disgrace of the gentry, and not long after to his own dishonour, who was thrust out of the Lord's house, with this censure, that thou, Lionel, Earl of Middlesex, shalt never sit, or have voice more in this house of peers, and shalt pay for a fine to our sovereign lord the king twenty thousand pounds leaving him still to overtop the gentry. The bishops kept him also from degrading, which I do verily believe is one cause the gentry will degrade them. The Spanish match having been long in treaty, and it being suspected now that the Spaniard did juggle with the state in this, as they formerly did in a match with that brave Prince Henry, and in truth in all other things wherein any negotiation had been only feeding the king with fair hopes and fair words yet foul deeds, 
whether the king suspected any such matter or any whimsy came in the brain of this great favourite and prince to imitate the old stories of the knights erland but agreed it was it should seem between the favourite and the prince only no one other so much as dreaming of any such adventure except cottington that the prince must go himself into spain away they went under the borrowed names of jack and tom smith to the amazement of all wise men only accompanied with cottington and some one or two more at most taking their way by france they had the ports laid so that none should follow them or give any notice to the french court till they might get the start etc yet their wisdoms made them adventure to stay in the french court and look on that lady whom he after married and there did this mars imitate one of prince arthur's knights in seeking adventures through foreign princes territories first beheld this french beauty mars vidit visamque cupid positorque cupita as in our discourse will afterward appear from thence away to spain but as the journey was only plotted by young heads so it was so childishly carried that they escaped the french king's couriers very narrowly but escape they did and arrived safely in spain their wished port before either welcome or expected by our ambassadors or that state yet now must the best face be put on at all hands that put their grandees to new shifts and our ambassador the earl of bristol to try his wit for at that time was sir walter aston also ambassador at spain in all occurrences aston complied with the prince and duke bristol ran counter and the duke and bristol hated each other mortally bristol had the advantage of them there as having the much better headpiece and being more conversant and dear with that state wholly complying with them and surely had done them very acceptable services and in this very treaty it was of the pact buckingham had the advantage of him in england although the king did now hate buckingham yet was so awed that he does not discover it then buckingham had all interest in his successor by this journey so that he laid a present and future foundation of his succeeding greatness for all his power and greatness bristol did not forbear to put all scorns affronts and tricks on him and buckingham lay so open as gave the other advantage enough by his lascivious carriage and miscarriage amongst all his tricks he plays one so cunningly that it cost him all the hair on his head and put him to the diet for it should seem he made court to conde alivari's wife a very handsome lady but it was so plotted betwixt the lady her husband and bristol that instead of that beauty he had a notorious stew's bird sent him and surely by reason of his said loose and vicious disposition had ever the match been really intended for our prince yet such a companion or guardian was enough to have made that wary nation believe that he had also been that way addicted and so have frustrated the marriage that being a grave and sober people now especially when conversed with by such great foreign guests but they well observed the prince himself to be of an extraordinary well-stayed temper but now many lords flocked over and many servants that he might appear the prince of england and like himself though he came thither like a private person many treaties were sometimes hope sometimes despair sometimes great assurance then all dashed again and however his entertainment was as great as possible that state could afford yet was his addresses to and with the lady such as rendered him mean and a private person rather than a prince of that state that formerly had made spain feel the weight of their anger and power and was like a servant not a suitor 
for he never was admitted but to stand bare-head in her presence, nor to talk with her, but in a full audience with much company. At last, after many heats and cools, many hopes and despairs, the prince wrote a letter to his father of a desperate despair, not only of not enjoying his lady, but of never more returning with this passage. You must now, sir, look upon my sister and her children, forgetting ever you had such a son, and never thinking more of me. Now the folly of this voyage, plotted only by green heads, began to appear, many showing much sorrow, many smiling at their sorrows, and in truth glad in their hearts. And however the king was a cunning dissembler, and showed much outward sorrow, as he did for Prince Henry's death, yet something was discerned, which made his court believe little grief came near his heart. For that hatred he bare to Buckingham long, as being satiated with him, and his, adoring the rising sun, not looking after the sun's setting, made the world believe he would think it no ill bargain to lose his son, so Buckingham might be lost also. For had he not been weary of Buckingham, he would never have adventured him in such a journey. All his courtiers knew that very well. And for a further illustration of his weariness of Buckingham, it appeared in the Parliament before, when the King gave so much way to his ruin, that Buckingham challenged him that he did seek his ruin, and being generally held as a lost man. The King, to make it appear it was not so, although as hereafter you shall understand it was so, and that the King durst not avow his own act, brought him off from that Parliament, but Buckingham hated the King ever afterwards. The reason the King so hated Buckingham, besides his being weary of him, for his now staleness, was his marriage, after which the King's age was ever taken off from all favourites as well as him. Yet this had so much the overawing power of him, that he does not make show to affect any other. There was one in Yossa, a Spanish ambassador extraordinary here, being an old soldier and a gallant fellow, who thought that Buckingham did not give that respect to him was due to his own person, or to the person of so great a king, whose person he represented. Ineosa, therefore, did as much scorn and slight Buckingham, and the prince whom he found wholly governed by Buckingham. For now Buckingham had found by many passages the king's desire to be rid of him, he made court to the prince, and so wrought himself into his affection that Damon and Pythias were not more dear to each other, which by no means could the old king away with. Nor, in truth, did any other like or approve of the prince's poor spirit, fearing it foretold his future inclination, that could ever endure any familiarity with such an one as had put such foul scorns and affronts on him in his time of greatness with the father, especially such as called to mind the bravery of his brother, who hated the whole family for their general baseness although none of them had ever offended him in particular, as this man had done the prince at two several times. Once, before an infinite concourse, by bidding him in plain terms kiss his ass. A second time, offering to strike him, saying in most undutiful terms, By God, it shall not be so, nor you shall not have it, lifting up his hand over his head with a ballon-bracer, that the prince said, What, my lord, I think you intend to strike me. The first of these audacious affronts was at Royston, the second at Greenwich, before about four hundred people, neither of which were to be endured by a private person, but by a prince from a private person, surely it showed a much less spirit than should have been inherent to a prince, and after this to be so dear with him as to be governed by him all his lifetime, more than his father was in the prime of his affection, 
I can give it no title mean enough. It had been worthy of the noble mind of a prince to have forgotten such injuries, as never to have revenged them when he had been king, but never to have suffered him to have come near his court, to upbraid him with the sight of so much scorn, and that publicly offered him before. But at that time I well remember some critics in court did not stick to read his future destiny. This Ignosa, being a brave, daring gentleman, used some speeches in the derogation of the prince and Buckingham, as if they were dangerous to the old king. Nay, Ignosa sent one Padre Macestria, a Spanish Jesuit and a great statesman, to King James to let him know that he, under confession, had found the king was by Buckingham or by his procurement to be killed. But whether by poison, pistol, dagger, etc., that he could not tell. The king, after the hearing of this, was extreme melancholy, and in that passion was found by Buckingham at his return to him. The king, as soon as ever he espied him, said, Ah, Steny, Steny, for so he ever called him in familiarity, Wilt thou kill me? At which Buckingham started and said, Who, sir, hath so abused you? At which the king sat silent. Out went Buckingham fretting and fuming, asked who had been with the king in his absence. It was told him, Padre Macestria. Then who brought him to the king? It was replied, the Earl of Kelly. Then flew Buckingham on him, to know how he durst bring anyone into the king in his absence or without his license. Kelly stood up close to him, for you must know Kelly was the truest alarm to give warning of the downfall of a favourite of any in the court, and knew his power could do him no hurt with the king in present, although it utterly cast him out of all favour from the king in future. Then Buckingham questioned Padre Macestria, but that quarrel was interposed and undertook by Ineosa, who told him he would maintain him a traitor, and that were his master's person off him. He was a chevalier, and better born than himself, and would make it good on him with his sword which high comparison, though I believe true enough, together with his generous charge and challenge, Buckingham for that time swallowed, and only thought of this shift to vindicate himself on Ineosa, which was to cause the prince to write a letter of complaint to the king of Spain for abusing him and Buckingham. But the king of Spain returned the letter in a kind of scorn to Ineosa, not as blaming him, but rather commending him, and Ineosa, in scorn, sent it to the prince, as if he should say, There is your letter to wipe, which is all it is fit for. Now have you heard what made the king hate Buckingham, you shall also hear the reason of Buckingham's extreme hatred to the king, which was believed the cause of his so speedy death. Yelverton, a very faithful servant to the king, and his attorney-general, and no less affectionate to Somerset, being formally raised by him, without any seeking of his or so much as within his thought, in so much as to express his love to Somerset, he desired to lay down that great place, rather than aggravate as his place required, against him. This man, as well out of his faithfulness to the king as affection to Somerset, was made choice of to work the downfall of Buckingham, in which he apparently showed himself. But Buckingham, as I told you before, out of the king's fear that durst not maintain his own design, but left his instruments to the mercy of Buckingham's tyranny, being once gotten out of the toil, like a chaste boar, foamed 
and bit at all came near him, and amongst them first fastened on Yelverton, put him out of his place, and committed him close prisoner to the tower. Yelverton, having showed himself so faithful to his master, and he again so unfaithful to him, to leave him to undergo the whole burden of Buckingham's fury, did fly out in some passion before Sir Alan Apperslip, then lieutenant of the tower, and Buckingham's great creature. Apperslip, telling the duke of some passages in his passion, the duke one night about twelve o'clock came in a disguise, and with the lieutenant only entered Yelverton's lodging. Yelverton at first sight started, verily believing he came in that manner to murder him, yet at last recollected himself, and said, My lord, have you the king's warrant for this? The duke said, No. Then said Yelverton, How dare you enter a close prisoner's lodging? It is as much as your life is worth. And assure yourself, Master Lieutenant, the king shall know of this, and you must answer it. My lord said, I come to you as a friend, though formerly I confess upon just cause your mortal enemy, only to ask you but two questions, which, if you will resolve me, I vow to be a greater friend now than ever an enemy, and can and will restore you fourfold. Yelverton told him, if they were such as he might, he would. The first he asked was, what wrong he had ever done him that he so greedily thirsted after his blood? Yelverton replied, never any, but I was set on by a power that I could not withstand to do what I did. He asked him, by whom? By the king your master, said he, who hates you more than any man living, which you might well understand, when in his speech to the parliament he said, he would not spare any, no, not any that were dearest to him or lay in his bosom by which he pointed them to you. Well, said Buckingham, I see you have dealt like a friend with me, by many other concurrences as well as by this. Give me your hand, henceforth you are my friend, and I am yours, and I will raise you higher than I have cast you down. Which he had made good, had Yelverton lived to have enjoyed it, for he was instantly released, and the next preferment he gratified him with was a judge's place and he had been Lord Keeper, had not death prevented it. And if there were no other reason but his change from a mortal enemy to so firm a friend, this were sufficient to confirm the truth of this story. But the author had this from Yelverton's own relation, and cannot commend Yelverton, because it is verily believed this hastened to the king's death. Now have you heard the true causes of Buckingham's hatred to the king, and the king's to Buckingham, the king, having the more power to revenge, had the less courage. Buckingham less power, but more courage, sharpened with revenge. And however the well did believe the king's inclination was out of a religious ground, that he might not revenge, yet it was no other but a cowardly disposition that does not adventure. But although the king lost his opportunity on Buckingham, yet the black plaster and powder did show Buckingham lost not his on the king and that it was no fiction but a reality that Padro Macestria had formerly told the king. End of section 7